Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the conservatives are closing in on the liberals as a result of the We Charity scandal. What will happen after the conservatives elect a new leader? Joe Biden gave a riveting speech at the Democratic National Convention. Could he be the next president? And the Arkells have a brand new COVID-19 type project. Campfire Chords will speak with Max Kerman and ask what he's been doing during a pandemic. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My friend Tom is here safely two meters away. Congratulations, you have made it through week number 23 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Holy junk. Suddenly the whole neighborhood's in on it. Safely from two meters away, I might add. Um... (laughs) Actually, Tom's screaming through the uh, open window of my office. All right. Uh, it must be the Friday edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show. It is an all-request Friday. If you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite, uh, give Will Man a call. Hey, they're even emailing them to me, Will. Send Will, uh, no, send me a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, or you can call Will. All right, uh, the Liberal Party and the Conservatives in a close race. Uh, the uh, Conservatives don't even really have a, well, they don't have a leader yet. That's going to be decided on Sunday. And, of course, this will all change uh, dramatically next week once uh, the conservatives do determine who their leader is and what their course of action is moving forward. Of course, we all know September 23rd, uh, back into the uh, parliament and a throne speech will be read and it's either yay or nay. And who knows what's going to happen from that. So, uh, but interesting, it, it, it's, it's tough to read polls, uh, at this time when there is just so much going on, whether it's a COVID-19 pandemic, whether it's a changing of the uh, finance minister, uh, the Wee scandal, prorogation, and as I mentioned, uh, the Conservatives don't even have a leader at this point. So what are the numbers saying? Let's bring in Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos, and is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, very well. Thank you. So tell us about what you're finding out here. Uh, what has changed? I mean, because obviously during a pandemic, all leaders of all stripes were, were pulling in pretty good numbers because the public loves it when everyone works together. However, as we're heading down the backside of the curve, uh, things are starting to change. Yeah, I mean, the prime minister's approval rating is still up over 50%, which for a, a second-term prime minister is, is quite strong, down mm-hmm. from from being in the heavens where he was uh, sort of during the lockdown uh, in, in the mid-70s. Uh, but what's really interesting is that the horse race, the popular vote numbers, are tightening. And we were in field uh, earlier this week, and then, of course, Bill Morneau resigned as finance minister. So we've got a really cool poll here because we surveyed 2,000 Canadians Half of the interviews were done prior to Bill Morneau's resignation, and half were conducted following his resignation, and so we can measure the immediate impact. Pre-resignation, the Liberals were up over the Conservatives by five points. Post-resignation, that five-point lead is now just one point, essentially a statistical tie in the horse race. How often, Sean, when you're in the polling game, does something like this happen where right in the middle of your polling sample, something changes and you get both sides of the stick? 
Yeah, you know, oftentimes we, we have to just kind of throw out the, 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 the pre because, you know, we don't necessarily have a significant enough sample size to, to, to read it cleanly. In this particular instance, you know, we had finished our thousand interviews um, and we were going to start writing up the results. And then all of a sudden the, the, uh, the resignation came in. So we flicked the switch, get back into field and have this, this beautiful pre post. And, you know, what it's showing us is that, uh, you know, I, this isn't fatal for the government, uh, but at least in a knee-jerk reaction, um, it, it's it's a tightening of the of, of the horse race. And as you said in your introduction, even without a conservative leader uh, yet named, you know that'll happen on Sunday, and I'm sure these results will 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 change, you know, either for the better or for the worse. But I, I'm sure that the conservatives uh, in a minority government situation are are feeling. Uh, a little bit more confident with these results than maybe they have been. So what does it say about these numbers, Sean, the fact that there is no leader of the opposition at this point, or there was yeah, an well, interim? Yeah, we know from the polling that a majority of Canadians, um, you know, believe that the WE scandal, for example, really demonstrates an, an ethical uh, problem with the government and, and, and with the prime minister. That said, a majority also want to move beyond it. You know, we've got bigger fish to fry, COVID-19, you know, economic recession. And so Canadians are getting a little bit sick of, of, of hearing about it. So they're, they're, you know, they're not totally, they're not angry, but they're, they're, they're um, frustrated, I think, with the government. And that's where we've got these two figures that, that are kind of in opposition to each other, one with approval ratings over 50%, but the other with popular vote for the Liberals being, you know, in the in the mid to low, low 30s. So at some point, those have to reconcile. And I think there's going to be two game changes coming. One is, of course, the 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 election of the of the new Tory leader on Sunday. But the second is when when we come back to Parliament in September, and we hear the speech from the throne, Canadians will be able to to weigh in on the future direction that the prime minister has in store. Clearly, the finance minister wasn't wasn't really aligned with that future direction, but it remains to be seen what Canadians think of it. It sounds as if they're uh, frustrated with the government in 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 you know the, these things taking the eye off the ball, but not, uh, but on the other hand, not really satisfied with any choice at this point. Yeah, well, that seems like, like there's no alternative. State of Canadians, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. You know, not not thrilled with what's going on, but 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 maybe less thrilled with with the alternatives. So, you know, we don't know who those alternatives are. Um, we've got some polling actually that's going to be coming out tomorrow regarding the the, uh, the conservative uh, leadership race and what Canadians think of the of the candidates. So, I'm not going to spoil that and, and scoop the story today. But um, you know, I think it really is going to depend on on who the leaders are because who the leader is rather because aside from Peter McKay. The other three candidates are largely unknown, not yeah. just by by Canadians, but by a lot of conservative voters as well. Uh, so, you know, that that's both a good and a bad thing. Um, you know, bad if you're getting flung into an election right away, because, you know, we elect leaders, really, not local candidates. But, you know, a blank slate is not a bad thing if you can if you can jump out ahead of your opponents and really start to define uh, your your leader because they don't they don't you know come with any pre-existing baggage Canadians are already aware of so you know we'll see how this all folds out in the coming weeks. Uh, any thoughts on how Canadians have reacted to prorogation? Yeah, you know I, it's one of those things that I, I think always annoys people, um, and you know I've just been been seeing uh, some you know 
memes on Facebook. And of course, it doesn't represent anything. But, you know, people saying, well, if our students can sit in a classroom, why can't our politicians sit in the legislature? Right. It's like, OK, you know. <laughs> well, again, what about all of this? You know, prorogation is one thing. You can debate that till the cows come home. Yeah, but yeah. during a pandemic has some concern. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, I know the government has already come under fire for the, the amount of time that the House has, has sat really since March. And, and you know, he, he's he's um, had a bit of a free ride, uh, despite it being a minority government, you know, when, when normally the opposition parties have an opportunity to be all over the government. It just hasn't happened. That said, uh, Monsieur Blanchet from the from the bloc says that if the prime minister doesn't resign over we, he's going to call a, 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 a motion of non-confidence against the prime minister. We're going to have those opportunities anyway when, when we get the speech from the throne and the budget. The speech of the, the throne will pass because, of course, the government doesn't have to put any dollars and cents against their, their you know, wonderful ideas. The budget, you know, we'll see some political brinkmanship and maybe for the first time in, in a minority mandate, the liberals will have to uh, negotiate and, and compromise a little bit. I was going to just about ask you about what you thought would happen post-September 23rd. Many are thinking, though, theoretically, it could trigger an election, although uh, I'm doubting the opposition is going to let the uh, the uh, government decide when that election is called. That's something that they probably want to choose to do. But what, what do you think life will be like after September 23rd? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of, of rhetoric and, and brinkmanship, um, a lot of, of uh, heavy talking, but... You know, I, I don't know if the conservatives are ready to go quite yet. They, they, they're going to, uh, I mean, it might depend on who the leader is. If it's Peter McKay, he's fairly well known, and they may feel like, you know, they don't need to, need an introductory period um, to introduce him to, to Canadians. But if any of the other three win, I think they will need need more time to introduce the new leader to to, to fundraise and, and, and just, to, just to get some time uh, under, under the new leader's belt to face the prime minister in, uh, in Parliament. So I don't think an election will happen. You know, uh, it, it, it might. There's obviously a chance there's going to be opportunity. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I think that if the Conservatives can get enough concessions from the prime minister uh, in, in, in the budget, then maybe they'll, they'll just support it for the time being. How much pressure, Sean, do you think is on this throne speech? I mean, theoretically, is this not the government playing their hand? This is their election hand, is it not? Yeah, it is their election hand, and I think it's also the prime minister's legacy. Um, you know, if he's got some big ideas about how he wants to change Canada and the social safety net, for example, maybe he will introduce a guaranteed um, uh, universal income, which the CERB has, has been a, a de facto experiment with that. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot riding on the, on the throne speech. Again, they don't have to really cost things out in the throne speech. Those details will come, will come in the budget. But, um, you know, if, if we're going to have an election, it will be fought on this, I think, progressive and ambitious uh, liberal agenda. And we'll see the extent to which Canadians are, are willing to embrace, you know, what I suspect will be some, some fairly fundamental change in, 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 in the way that Canada's um, social services are organized. So obviously we're going to see something uh, quite substantial in this throne speech, the vision for for the next uh, few years uh, from this government. Uh, that being said, these committees, from what we hear from the opposition, will start up again. The WE committee will start up again, the Canada-China committee, uh, yeah. which was also postponed or, or thrown out or, or, or stopped during all of this, uh, will start up again. How long before that starts to 
to creep in because what I'm guessing, the longer this goes past the 23rd, the harder it's going to be for the prime minister. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, but Canadians, as I said, are already getting a little bit fed up with hearing about it. And the prime minister is turning out to be a little bit like Dalton McGuinty was here in Ontario, the Teflon premier. You know, where just mm. things don't ever seem to stick to him. You know, they, they may be momentarily um, wound him, but he kind of gets up and, 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 and continues on. So we may be seeing that here. If the government has proposed some big sweeping changes to to, to, to the way that, that the social programs are, are delivered and organized in Canada, you know what are Canadians going to want to hear about? Are they going to want to hear debate about those big issues that are really going to impact our, our future as a country, or are they going to want to hear about you know the wee scandal and and you know so other things that maybe they will have seen as as things in the past that they're trying to get over. We know where the Conservatives are going to want to go, and they're promising to keep it alive in, in committee, and I'm, I'm sure they, they'll bring it up, but they may, again, have a, have another focus at taking Trudeau to task on policy. How important is it for whoever the, the new consu- uh, Conservative leader is uh, to match this throne speech in some way? Because sooner or later, we're going to have to start to hear their vision. Uh, again, they've literally, be, literally been rudderless for the, for the longest time. And, and even with Andrew Scheer, uh, I don't think a lot of people <laughs> really liked him either. Do you think that's reflective in these numbers? I mean, we could see a big jump or a big change come uh, after Sunday once the leader's elected. Yeah, the Tories have a lot of work ahead of them, right? And 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 they they're not going to have the benefit of knowing what the Liberals have planned until the rest of us in Canada do. Um, so they're going to have to come up with some kind of alternative um, and and try to counter if the Liberals are proposing policy X. They just can't berate policy X without coming up with their own solutions, right? They're going to need to say, well, you know, we still think we should do A, B, and C, but. Instead of increasing deficits, you know, to 400 billion, we think that there's a way to, you know, scale it back to 200 billion. I think that the big, the big variables here are going to be taxation. Uh, you know, whether the Liberals, they've said they're not going to increase taxes, but we've heard that you know, many times from all kinds of governments before, and it's it's just hard to know what that path even back to remotely close to balanced budgets uh, looks like uh, under a liberal or or conservative. I think that'll be the the sort of differentiating factor. Also, it'll be interesting to see how uh, the conservative government's uh, conservative government, what their plan is when it comes to climate change and how they combat what the prime minister is doing. Yeah, and it's interesting because we know from our issue tracking that um, the environment, at least temporarily, has really subsided as an issue that's top of mind for Canadians. And we know that it was a great issue for for the the Liberals because they have some some credentials uh, and point of differentiation uh, compared to 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 the Conservatives. But with that issue now kind of you know no longer in the top five, still in the top ten, but no longer in the top five for Canadians. Um, the prime minister loses his advantage in, in that area. But where the prime minister still has an, an advantage is on economic recovery in the recession, which is really interesting because traditionally that is that that's sort of the purview of conservatives. You know, and normally during elections, when we ask who's best lead on the economy, mm. the conservatives are chosen. At the moment, the Liberals have a five-point lead. So the Conservatives are really going to need to focus on the economy, their path for economic recovery, and convince Canadians that their their path is better than the Liberals. If they can't do that, they don't have a hope of winning. If they can do that, then we'll see a very competitive election. 
Sean Simpson has been with us, VP of Ipsos, the Liberal Party and Conservatives in a close race. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this all transpires uh, after the weekend and a conservative leader is chosen. Sean, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. It's been my pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joe Biden vowed to defeat uh, Donald Trump last night in his speech for the final night of the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Here is a clip of that speech. Character is on the ballot. Compassion is on the ballot. Decency, science, democracy, they're all on the ballot. Five million Americans infected by COVID-19. More than 170,000 Americans have died. By far the worst performance of any nation on earth. The worst pandemic in over 100 years. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. The most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s. And the undeniable realities and just the accelerating threats of climate change. We have a great purpose as a nation to open the doors of opportunity to all Americans. To save our democracy. To be a light to the world once again. All right, that was uh, Joe Biden, excerpts from his speech last night, uh, the final night of the uh, Democratic National Convention in Delaware. Let's bring in Michael Trogott, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science uh, at the University of Michigan and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm holding up fine. Thank Uh, you. You are well, Scott. That's great to hear, Michael. Good to hear. Before we get into the Democratic Convention, uh, just your thoughts on what a convention looks like in a COVID-19 world. Uh, obviously, the balloons, the, the placards, the, the screaming and yelling, all gone in place of a virtual setting. Your thoughts on how this all turned out, and, and, and is this resonating more with voters than the standard convention? Well, I think we have to make a distinction between the the citizens and the commentators uh, who watched and the vast majority who didn't. Um, this is clearly a different kind of convention put together at the last minute because it became clear only recently that they couldn't convene in Milwaukee and with uh, uh, very high visual qualities. I don't think it's going to be possible to get away from the delegates on the floor voting for the nominees and to get away from the, uh, you know, big balloon drop and confetti after the uh, nomination is completed and after the candidate makes his or her acceptance speech. But there were some qualities like the, the visuals of talking to the delegation leaders from their home locations that I think were great. And, and I think the use of more video uh, was, was great as well. Do you think this sort of uh, uh, edited presentation had more impact with voters than if they were watching the standard fare, or do you think that resonates? Well, I, I, you know, I, my own view is that there was a combination of things going on because the programming was so tight and because the uh, journalists couldn't be at the convention, there was uh, a lot less, almost n- no interviewing of individuals during the course of the evening. And I think that made it flow better. And it was, uh, you know, a, a range of content that was 
more clearly integrated. So there's a sense in which the work of journalists uh, uh, on the floor and uh, interviewing party leaders and delegates and so on is disruptive uh, to the presentation of an integrated thematic message. I, I doubt that uh, because this is essentially a television event, it'll be possible to keep the journalists off the floor in subsequent conventions. But I think there'll be some pause as people think about that. So obviously the Republican, and we'll get down to the performances last night, but uh, obviously the Democratic convention, or sorry, Republican convention is coming up. What do the Republicans learn from what the Democrats uh, have done? Obviously Donald Trump enjoys the live crowd. Uh, how will they, what will they learn from this? Well, I think they'll, I think they'll be able to take advantage of certain elements of what the Democrats did because of the fact they had to go first. And, uh, you know, they, they will try to uh, employ these high-quality visual elements, you know, this kind of storytelling. Um, but at the same time, there will be some elements that will be missing. I don't expect to see many Democrats speaking up on behalf of Donald Trump the way there were Republicans that, you know, present at the Democratic Convention. And uh, the stories that will come from average citizens will be quite different, too. Uh, uh, I mean, this is a guess. But since the Republicans have teased the fact that they're going to have this couple that had their guns drawn when there was a demonstration outside their house, uh, there's, in general, be a lot less empathy uh, in the Republican uh, convention because there's a lot less empathy from Donald Trump in relation to Joe Biden. Uh, I, do the Democrats, as a result of what's happened with, obviously, uh, the vice presidential nomination with Harris, uh, do they have more momentum right now than what the Republicans have? Well, you know, there are two stories here that are obviously related. One of them is the current campaign and the other is the future of the two parties. And uh, for um, the election since the 1970s, whites have been, uh, a majority of whites have been uh, supporting the Republican candidate, although by, you know, various amounts. But, but the Republican Party has become predominantly a party of whites and older whites in particular. So, the demography of the U.S. population favors uh, the Democrats if they can get their supporters to the polls. So we see a more uh, heterogeneous population depicted at the uh, Democratic convention than we will see at the Republican. And that that's about what this campaign will be about. But it's also, you know, about the future of the parties. Um, again, before we get to uh, Biden's performance and such, the last election for uh, the president, it was making America great again. As we've seen speakers through the Democratic Convention, this seems less about policy, more about character. It's less about making the country great 
or, or, or what it takes to do that, and more about the person that's running it in, in the dark side, so to speak, uh, to use Biden's words. Uh, is that what this campaign will be about? It's less about what the policies are and, and more about uh, the person that's running? Uh, well, at one level, I agree with you entirely, because the greatest contrast between the two uh, major party candidates is in their personality and and the public's assessment of their personal traits. The polling data show that uh, slight uh, majorities feel that Trump might be better at handling the economy, and he also might be uh, a better, uh, a stronger leader. But in terms of traits like cares about people like me, able to handle the coronavirus and so on, uh, Biden has very strong leads, and and that is uh, what's I think supporting his campaign. And uh, I think it's probably uh, true in a real sense, but also the way the press is covering the two candidates that there's a significant difference in the empathetic uh, reaction of each of the candidates to regular citizens. So. The Democrats have no interest, really, in running on specific policy positions, although they will have policy positions. But I think they'd rather see the contest uh, organized around differences in the in the personal traits of the um, candidates. The other important element, of course, about the about the campaign and the election will be turnout. It'll be turnout in a way. <clears throat> that we haven't thought about this in the past because the Democrats will be interested in stimulating turnout as much as possible while it's now clear that the Republican Party is going to be interested in suppressing turnout. All right, let's talk about uh, Biden's performance last night. Uh, many have said that he, he, he's, you know, his, his better days are behind him. Uh, obviously, Trump is pouncing on this, uh, painting a picture that he's too old, that there's nothing going on there. Uh, your thoughts on his performance last night? Well, I thought the delivery of his speech was very good. Uh, it, it was very well done. He focused on what I would call valence issues. You mentioned some of these at the start. For example, his discussion of democracy. That's not really a difference where... Uh, you know, one candidate is pro-democracy and the other is anti-democracy. It's just a view about how important democracy is. So uh, I think that I think that part was very. I, I think that part was done very well. Um, there's a very subtle uh, democratic attempt to forestall these attacks that they know are coming about uh, uh, Biden's mental uh, competence that, <clears throat> that I think they're trying to retell through the lens of his stuttering and uh, about how careful he is with his choice of words. And sometimes he switches from, uh, you know, one phraseology to another. Yeah, so yeah. The, the use of this young uh, man last night, Brayton, the, the teenager who also... Mm -hmm. uh, had a conversation with Joe Biden about stuttering, I think is the beginning of uh, an attempt by the Democrats to reframe this. That's fascinating. Um, how does, many have talked about uh, how this sort of format had 
uh, benefited uh, Joe Biden as opposed to uh, being in, in the large hall, so to speak. Uh, what happens during the debates when it's one on one? What does uh, what how does Joe Biden react when Donald Trump is being Donald Trump? Well, I, I think there's one important detail that we don't know about the debates yet. Uh, we know what the schedule is, and we know what the desired format is. I think there's some possibility the candidates won't appear on the same stage, and that it will also be done through you know teleconferencing. That could have a big effect uh, on the behavior of the candidates. Um, I think there will be expectations set up based upon uh, Trump's uh, performance in 2016, you know, when he debated Hillary Clinton. And I wouldn't be surprised. I, I haven't heard that they have had serious conversations yet about the exact rules of the debates, um, that there won't be discussion about trying to keep the candidates behind the podium and not letting them wander the stage. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking about, Michael, was was Donald Trump walking around behind Hillary during the last set of debates. Yes, and, and I think that uh, the commission, you know, will ha- has a pretty good understanding of what the impact of that was. But um, the, the commission on uh, presidential debates doesn't so much set up rigid rules as it is a mechanism for negotiating the the rules of conduct. And so we'll have to see what happens there. And it'll be interesting to see the politics that come out of that. If, for example, the Biden camp wants a virtual uh, debate and the Trump camp wants a live debate where they're both there in person. Uh, uh, Yes, I agree. And you know uh, that already there are four debates typically in the sequence, and already two of them have been relocated to other venues off college campuses. So um, there is the, you know, distinct possibility of change and adaptation. We'll have to see where it goes. So if you're the Donald Trump campaign, you've seen what's happened with uh, uh, the announcement of of, uh, VP Harris, uh, potential vice president, um, and, and, and of course, the Democratic uh, convention. What does Donald Trump have to do to... You know, you don't want to put too much emphasis on the polls. We remember them last time. But but to turn this around, because it, it seems as if the tide has changed here. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it depends on what side of the fence you're on. Uh, but can Donald Trump just continually be divisive through this campaign uh, and throw in the insults and what have you? Can that get him through this campaign, especially during a pandemic when people's attitudes have changed drastically? Well, first of all, when I when I answer this question you <laughs> you just asked me, um, I'm going to have to make a distinction between the people who are advising Donald Trump and Donald Trump himself, hmm. because it's unclear whether he can follow in detail the advice that he's given and not, for example, wander off script. So uh, um, we... W- I think the original Trump strategy was emphasize the economy, which is humming along, and then minimize turnout. He, he, he's unusual compared to other presidents, uh, other you know, recent presidents that we've seen, because when he was elected, he made no attempt at all to try to expand or grow the size of his coalition. Hmm. 
ever since he took office, he's been focused on this uh, relatively small group, maybe a third of the population of the you know U.S. adults uh, who support his his views. One one difference, of course, is that in 2016 he ran as an outsider, and now he's an incumbent. So he has a record to defend. And besides his anti-immigration views or his complicated dealings with foreign countries, he's also been hit by the coronavirus, which, of course, wasn't his doing. But it's going to loom over the entire campaign because it is an indirect test of competence. Uh, I think this was a point that Biden uh, hit home pretty hard last night about, uh, you know, about leadership. And uh, Donald Trump can try to adjust his behavior and his response, but he's not going to be able to uh, disassociate himself entirely from the last five or six months. Michael Trogott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan, talking about the Democratic National Convention and the race moving forward. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too, Scott. Great to chat. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, the last time we talked to Max Kerman from the Arkells, he was uh, giving out free lessons on how to play riffs from uh, uh, their songs and such. Uh, and at that time, I, I don't think anybody knew that we were going to be as deep into a pandemic as we are now, uh, week number 23. And as uh, even though we're in stage three, things have definitely changed. Uh, hasn't stopped the Arkells, though. Uh, their newest project, Campfire Chords, is now out. Max Kerman from the Arkells is with us now. Max, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm about to go to a pool party, actually, in Hamilton. This is uh, a new development. Stage three, we can go to a small pool party. So you you take your swim trunks and your mask and your towel and off you go. That's exactly right. That's right. (laughs) So let me, before we get into campfire chords, I I was talking to an aspiring uh, musician, uh, you know, maybe a couple of weeks into this. And it was clearly, it was clear that that this was going to change society. And I remember asking her uh, how she thought this was going to change music. I mean, pop music always in some way reflects the changing society and what is going on. Is the music industry, will the music business, will be what will what we be hearing be different post-COVID-19 than pre-COVID-19, do you think? That's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of pent-up energy. <laughs> That's definitely... Uh something that i think a lot of musicians are feeling right now um but you know right now for us like the moment just felt a little quieter you know we've been working on um a new record and you know they're full of kind of big old rock and roll songs but we just didn't really want to put them out because it just felt like you know if we can't go and play them (laughs) sort of what's the point Uh, but we know they're in our back pocket we're excited to get them out in the world when we can get back on tour but for now, you know, musicians have always had to adapt, and we're all kind of small business owners to a degree. So, uh, you know, we figured that if we can do these stripped-down recordings and have them, you know, keep people company in their backyards or whether on a camping trip or at the, the, the cottage, that could be a, a cool way to interact with the world. So uh, pre-COVID-19, what was the plan for the Arkells throughout the summer? Obviously, we remember the big party at Tim Hortons. Uh, so how has is, how is the summer changed for your band? 
Yeah, you know, I think we we, we took for granted a lot of things. Uh, looking back, uh, you know, every summer, you know, we'd find ourselves in London, England, or we'd be in British Columbia. There'd, there'd just be things going on that we, we'd come back to year after year, and and obviously all that stuff is on hold right now. Uh, so yeah, we we were planning on you know doing a lot of festivals and a lot of weekends away, and and we've been really lucky that you know we could come back to Hamilton during the week and play like softball on Tuesday nights and then go fly somewhere and play festival on the weekend. Um, so that, that that was what our summer was going to look like. And obviously it's, it's been changed, it's changed for everybody. So talk about Campfire Chords, uh, obviously rejig versions of, uh, of other songs. You've got other projects that you're waiting for when life gets sort of back to normal. How did you get to the concept of, of Campfire Chords? Well, it actually started with the uh, guitar lessons that you mentioned uh, off the top there. Um, you know, when breaking down the song to people on Instagram and just playing the song acoustically, whatever I was teaching that day, the feedback largely was, oh, that sounds actually really nice. It kind of makes you appreciate the song in a different way. I'd love to hear an acoustic version of that. And we've never really been that interested in making an acoustic record. We also haven't had the time to do it either. But we figured if we can make these arrangements special and reimagine these songs, and make it not just simply an acoustic record, but something with some orchestration, some like real thought to the arrangement. And this is something that we could, you know, consider doing. And uh, we all started recording these songs from home. It usually start with me, and I'd send them off to Tony, and Tony would add his part, and then send them to Mike and Nick and Tim. And we just kind of build them up from the ground that way. And uh, we finished probably about eighty percent of the record just from home. Uh, in our own little, you know, attics or bedrooms, just uh, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, and then we finished the last probably 20% of the record with our friend Aaron Goldstein at his studio in Toronto when we were let out of the house. So that's what we were, uh, that, that's how we were able to kind of finalize it all. So I've often talked to musicians, and you know, when uh, they write a song and then the process that goes involved in, in writing and then producing and recording and, and what you're finally laying down and then what you eventually play in front of an audience, uh, many artists say, you know, I'd like a second kick at that can. I'd like to do something a bit differently. What's it like to go back? and re-burp your old babies what's it like to go back and, and relive those songs yeah well it kind of it's interesting because usually when you're working on a song there's a lot of different kind of references in your mind as to like where you can go sonically with it um and, and you know normally we're thinking about like the live show and how we can make the songs feel like big and grand but when we but all the songs start off in a very like intimate way and you know i'm a big fan of like singer songwriter music and and you know some great like sort of folk artists over the years and i've always been sort of a little jealous or uh, of of those sort of quieter recordings and how you can actually do a lot in a quiet recording whether that's adding strings uh, or you really let the vocals and the harmony shine or you're using kind of different guitars so this was a good opportunity to kind of like flex that muscle a little bit because uh normally when we're working on our kells record we feel a little bit beholden to like you know, putting on a big show. Uh, and then, but this, this project, a lot of us kind of do the opposite of that. So a new song on this, how do you pick that one? How, how does that choice made? Um, that was just a song that kind of came to us in May. And it was, it was just sort of like a song that felt right for the moment. And we thought it, it would kind of like make the record feel that much more special. If there was like one brand new song on it and we could really like focus that and, and build the album around it. And, um, yeah, we had a friend, Kendall Carson, like, fiddle on it. She's actually out in Vancouver Island, so I just sent her a text. And I said, I think you'd be perfect for this. Do you think you could record from home? 
And that's exactly what she did. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think for us, like, we try not to be too dogmatic with the way we go about our business. We like to try to always evolve and learn from other people and, and feel like what is, like, what's the most exciting thing to, to be done in this moment. And, um, yeah, so, so that was sort of the ethos of this record. It's like, what, what is the most exciting move? And that's kind of writing a new one, recording from home, sending it off to a friend to help out with it and go from there. What's it like to have everybody bring in their piece from home as opposed to having that collaboration? Not that there's any less collaboration, but as opposed to having that in-person collaboration in a studio. Um, I think there's pros and cons. I mean, obviously, you don't get like the immediate reaction or like the, the back and forth that that's fun about being with a band in the studio. But on the other hand, everybody has a little more time to just sort of, um, you know, let the material like simmer with the material a little bit. And nobody's looking over your shoulder or going, oh, try this one, try this thing. I think every band is a little guilty of that. <laughs> so the fact that everybody can just like really stretch out, really take their time. We're not on the studio clock. We don't have to worry about like wasting money or something. You know, the record was a uh, very, very inexpensive record to make <laughs> compared to most of our other ones. Uh, talk about the video and the shots uh, in the makeshift tent there or whatever it is. Because, you know, when I hear of this and, and I close my eyes, I'm thinking I, I've envisioned envisioning you not all in separate places, adding your pieces together, but sitting in that tent and just strumming and taking it right off the tent, as, as they say. Uh, that really does add a different feel to it. Where is that? What's happening there? Yeah, well, we needed to kind of uh, roll with the times and we needed to make a video that didn't require a massive production crew, you know, and we didn't want to like spend a boatload on it. And and I think that the nature of the music kind of lends itself to sort of like a, a one shot selfie video with just the five of us in it. No bells and whistles. I think that's like what the song sounds like. And, and we figured like that's what that's what the music video treatment should be like. And, and you know, I think there's... Um, something sort of comforting for like our audience just to see our faces up close and personal <laughs> or something, you know, like so there's something very like, immediate to it and very personal. And I think, I think people enjoy that. Will this change the Arkells in any way, this experience? Like, again, you've got the, you've got something loaded in the can ready to go when this is all over. Will that be applicable when this is all over and it's time to go out? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think everything we do changes us, though. Um, yeah. And I think that's good. I think change is really good. I think if you look over the course of our records, like they've all evolved and, and been different things based on where we're at in our lives. And I think I think that's a really positive thing to keep changing. I think, I think the acts that end up boring me eventually are the ones that don't change. So I think, like, if, uh, you know, in, in the record's out now, and it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it and, and then how it becomes a part of our live show and how it becomes a part of our photography. Max Kerman has been uh, been with us from the Arkells. The new project is Campfire Chords uh, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, Max, it's an all-request Friday. Uh, do you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Any song in the world, what do you want to hear? Oh, great. <laughs> Any song in the world. Okay, uh, I was actually just listening to Joel Plaskett. Joel's a the inspiration. Actually, he's made some great records. So let's do uh, Happen Now by Joel Plaskett. All right. We'll see if we can dig that out. Max uh, Max has been with us. Max Herman from the Arkells. And Campfire Chords is the new uh, project. Max, best of luck to you. Can't wait to see you guys again. Yeah, thanks so much. Great talking. The Scott
Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. <laughs>